0: For as long as people have been diagnosing illnesses, there's been the question of whether the illness is real or not. But science has increasingly revealed just how much our emotions and mental states can affect our physical health. Look no further than the slew of articles advising people to take a break from the news in order to avoid stress. But there is still a lot of stigma and confusion around psychosomatic illnesses, and that's why we have decided to make it the topic for this week's Please Explain. Suzanne Sullivan has been Been a consultant in neurology since 2004, currently at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery in London. Her latest book is Is It All in Your Head? True Stories of Imaginary Illnesses, published by Other Press. And I'm very pleased that it brings Dr. O'Sullivan to our show today. Welcome. Thank you. And we invite our audience always during these segments to join in the conversation. If you have a question about psychosomatic illnesses or the mind-body connection, give us a call at 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at WNYC.org on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. So Dr. O'Sullivan, how much is spent on treating psychosomatic disorders in the United States? Has anybody estimated it?
1: Yes, there was a study carried out in 2005 which looked at the costs of investigating medically unexplained symptoms to the USA, and it came up with a figure of $256 billion. And just to put that into perspective, the cost of treating... Um, the disease diabetes in the same year was $132 billion. So we're talking about a large amount of money being spent on investigations. And I'd like to emphasize that the money spent on medically unexplained symptoms in that study were largely unhelpful to the patients. That was the money spent on tests that didn't make people better rather than on the sort of interventions that could help people.
0: Would it be very different in England with the National Health Service?
1: It isn't hugely different. Uh, medically unexplained symptoms are um, equally um, prevalent in all sorts of societies, irrespective of what sort of health um, service people have. However, I think it does make a difference if you have a service in which um, carrying out investigations is incentivized. Um, to the doctor or to the hospital, then I think that can encourage people to carry out unnecessary investigations. But the overall prevalence of these disorders is similar in every sort of um, country with every sort of economy.
0: What's the connection between neurology, your specialty, and psychosomatic illnesses? Uh, aren't psychosomatic illnesses actually under the, the purview of psychology?
1: Well, that's, yes, tech- a psychosomatic illness would be considered to be someone who has a a physical disability which is not due to an organic disease but is more related to something psychological. So traditionally that would be viewed as something which is a psychological or psychiatric illness. But the problem is that the people who suffer with these kind of disorders, they have physical disabilities. So they have real pain or they have real weakness or they have convulsions or palpitations So people who suffer with physical symptoms don't traditionally go to see a psychiatrist or go to see a psychologist, Um, and those people, therefore, have found themselves falling between stools in terms of speciality. They're going to see doctors who are not trained in their disorder, and they're failing to see people who are trained. So really, although traditionally these disorders have been fallen under the responsibility of someone like a psychologist, I really feel that they should be um, understood an awful lot better and treated by people like neurologists, the people who are actually getting to see the patients.
0: Although you have recommended to any number of patients that they go see a psychologist at some point.
1: Well, I think that the care of psychosomatic symptoms needs to be uh, taken um, on by a multidisciplinary team. So if there are physical symptoms, then someone needs help by... Um, with a neurologist or a physiotherapist or an occupational therapist, and the psychological aspect of the disorder can be uh, cared for by a psychologist. So really it has to be a joint effort between people who specialize in physical medicine and those who specialize in psychological
0: medicine. Don't many psychosomatic illnesses start with a trigger? Yeah. What kinds of triggers?
1: Yeah, I think that's correct. I think that very often um, there is something that sets the process off. And in the distant past, everyone sort of assumed that every psychosomatic illness was due to something like a severe psychological trauma. So they've often been associated with something like abuse or loss of a loved one and so forth. And that certainly is uh, the sort of thing that can sometimes trigger people to develop illness, which may be physical as well as psychological. However, that's not the only sort of trigger. Sometimes a trigger may be something like an illness and the way someone responds to an illness. So I'd quite often see people who suffer something like an injury for example they injure their foot and they have difficulty recovering from that injury and they have difficulty rehabilitating they pay a lot of attention to the injury and that can lead to disability so sometimes the triggers are psychological but sometimes the triggers are physical illness
0: what are some of the more common psychosomatic illnesses
1: well the common things would be something like pain tiredness palpitations So every sort of hospital specialist would see these sort of disorders very commonly. Studies show that about a third of people who go to see their family doctor have a psychosomatic disorder, and very often that's something like tiredness or pain. Um, But if you are a cardiologist or a spiritual physician, a neurologist, you will also see at least one-third of your patients as psychosomatic. And in those cases, headaches, palpitations, chest pain are very
0: common. My guest is Suzanne O'Sullivan her book, Is It All in Your Head? True Stories of Imaginary Illnesses. It is published by other press. This is WNYC, WNYC.org. I'm Leonard Lopate. Some people might think that a psychosomatic illness means that it's just not real. After all, your book is titled, Is It All in Your Head? Uh, so wh- where is the line between uh, a uh, an imagined thing and something that is real even though it's tri- it starts off in your head?
1: Well, I mean, it's so important to emphasize to people that these symptoms are real and that the disability or the pain that you get in a psychosomatic condition is every bit as real as the pain you would get from an organic disease. So to say something is all in your head is to say that the brain and the mind are One and there's you know, people who have brain diseases have psychological symptoms, and people who um, suffer with psychiatric disorders are more likely to have brain abnormalities. So, I think we need to stop dividing the brain and the mind so completely from one another. But it's very important. As I usually say to my patients, you know, if you're frightened and your heart starts racing at 150 beats per minute, that is real. There's nothing imagined about that. However, it's not happening through a heart disease, and it is something that is outside of your control. It is real, but it's not due to a heart disease.
0: Is a, a serious psychosomatic disorder considered a mental illness, a form of it?
1: if if one wishes to kind of place absolute labels on things then it is a a psychological or psychiatric illness Um, but I think unfortunately that there's connotations going along with people receiving a psychiatric diagnosis that, that kind of mean, that sort of labeling makes the diagnosis more difficult for people to take. I think that anybody can develop a physical symptom for psychological reasons. We all get them all the time. Lots of people get headaches and things at the end of stressful days. These are common things that can happen to anybody. And I think we need to stop dividing them so completely into either psychiatric or physical. I think that these disorders um, are of brain and mind.
0: Does it vary depending on the culture that one grows up in?
1: Yes, I think that there are cultural influences that will determine what sort of symptoms you get. So, you know, we do learn through the news and um, through the people we live with and through our communities of... Um, what are the common ways for people to suffer? And therefore, you know, if, if, for example, we read in the newspaper tomorrow that there was an outbreak of some sort of illness in our area that was resulting in people having vomiting or abdominal pain, then in the context of someone being distressed and looking for symptoms, then they're the kind of symptoms that they may develop. So these sort of symptoms, the, the breadth of the problem isn't very different in different cultures, but the way that it manifests is often determined by what are common symptoms within that culture.
0: Wouldn't those people be called hypochondriacs?
1: Well, hypochondria really is something very different. Um, hypochondria is still a serious problem. I mean, hypochondria is where someone is worried about illness. Now, someone who is a hypochondriac may have little or no symptoms, so it could be that they have you know, a tiny freckle on their arm and they're absolutely convinced that that freckle is, is skin cancer and what's disabling that person is not the mark on their arm, it's the anxiety about the mark on their arm. Where psychosomatic conditions are different. What's disabling someone in a psychosomatic condition is the physical disability. So they have a real pain or a real weakness or something of that nature that's disabling them. There may be anxiety going along with them, but it's, along with that disability, but it's the physical disability that is disabling them.
0: Listeners have been calling in, so let's take a couple of those calls. Our number here is 212-433-9692. Gina from Manhattan, you're on the air.
2: you, uh, Leonard. I love your show. Uh, I just wanted to find out what the incidence is of diagnoses that are psychosomatic that are not. Because uh, years ago, I was diagnosed as a psychosomatic and I had lost sensory perception. And the doctor, a very uh, recognized and respected brain uh, tumor doctor, uh, thought it was a brain tumor. And he tested me vigorously uh, to no avail. I did not have a brain tumor, and so he was left with the diagnosis of it was psychosomatic and it was not and I was terrified. I thought maybe the next day, if it 's all in my head, I would decide not to walk or not to see uh, and and it was It was awful and then I finally went to another doctor and who told me I had hyperglycemia. It was all because of that. He treated me, and I got better. So how? what is the incidence of diagnoses, I mean, if you know, of people who no. are supposed to have psych, you know, psychosomatic, and, and they're not?
0: I, I'm, I'm going to add to that. I know some people who've had what's been called chronic fatigue syndrome, and doctors have told them that it was all in their heads. And it turned out that it was perhaps a problem with their thyroid.
1: Um, Actually, I mean, this obviously is is people's greatest concern, that um, if they're given a psychosomatic diagnosis, that it's just a missed disease. Actually, um, I can speak for neurology, although it may be different for other specialties. In neurology, if the diagnosis is made correctly, so if someone is properly listened to, if somebody is properly examined, then the diagnosis is actually extremely stable, and the misdiagnosis rate is about 4%, which is a similar misdiagnosis rate as, as you would have in any sort of medical condition where there isn't a single diagnostic test. And obviously, I'm aware that misdiagnosis happens, and certainly when someone is diagnosed with a psychosomatic con- condition, it's important for the doctor to keep an open mind, that things develop differently in the future. But if the diagnosis is made carefully, it is a reliable diagnosis.
0: Let's take another call. Helen from White Plains, you're on the air. Helen? Yes. We're, we're on a little delay, so just turn down your radio and talk into the phone.
3: Oh, wait a minute. I, I don't understand. Can I listen to the show?
0: Yeah, on the phone. Oh, go ahead.
3: Yes, hi. Um, I have really a two part question. Go ahead. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Helen, turn down your radio yeah. so you can hear us through the phone. Okay. There you um, go
3: sorry.
0: Uh, Helen, what's your question?
3: <laughs> I have a two-part question. Number one, um, I have a number of medically unexplained conditions that cause me a lot of chronic pain, but they I don't believe that they are psychosomatic. is Is the author saying that psychosomatic equals medically unexplained? Because there are a lot of things that doctors
1: cannot explain.
0: Dr. Sullivan?
1: Yes. Yeah, I mean, in in general, the term medically unexplained symptoms is is a very sort of woolly term, which is, is often used in medical literature to be synonymous almost with psychosomatic symptoms. I mean, your call is correct. Not everything that's medically unexplained is psychosomatic, but a large number of medically unexplained symptoms are psychosomatic. And they usually is possible as a doctor to tell the difference between something that is a disease that you just don't know what it is yes, and something which is psychosomatic because diseases usually come with objective findings of some sort. So we don't make the diagnosis because we can't explain something. We make it because it's the clinical signs, for example, don't make anatomical sense and there's a lack of objective evidence of disease. And obviously the diagnosis will be wrong sometimes, but if you wait six months or so, the objective evidence will, will become obvious. So, in general, the diagnosis is made because there is a lack of objective evidence of disease. But it's also important to say to people that, you know, if you have a medically unexplained problem, I would encourage people to just think psychosomatic. You don't have to embrace the diagnosis and believe it absolutely, but if you have no other options and you've tried lots of things, then why not try this? You know, if, we, if someone had a chest pain, they were considering a chest infection or a clot in their lung, they would like both of those things investigated and considered equally. Um, I'm saying add to your armory of possibilities psychosomatic and give it the same respect as any other diagnosis.
3: Well, I have a second part to the question and, and I appreciate your answer. As someone who has explored many of these symptoms with various people in the psycho- psychological and psychiatric field, You're a neurologist. How would one go about finding a neurologist who is um, conversant with the idea of psychosomatic disease rather than just someone who will do
1: neurological testing? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a very important point. I mean, all doctors have areas of specialist interest and different ways of practicing, so... Like with any neurologist, you don't want to see a, a neurologist for multiple sclerosis who's a specialist in epilepsy and vice versa. So it is important to find people who have an interest in, in a disorder. And that usually in an uh, individual area, the best way to do that is go through one's family doctor because they're the people who refer to the local hospitals and they will have a sense of who is interested in which aspect of neurology and so on.
0: Now most of our callers have been women. Do psychosomatic illnesses affect men and women equally?
1: Well, it's true that um, that psychosomatic conditions are more frequent in men in excuse me in women than they are in men.
0: Do we know why?
1: I think we don't know absolutely why. Um, I think there's a few different influencing factors. I think that there has been a tendency for doctors to be more willing to make the diagnosis in women. So they think of it earlier in women than they think of it in men, and that accounts for some of the difference. However, I don't think that explains all the difference. I also think that women are in this sort of situation that can sometimes result in psychosomatic symptoms. They often can occur if someone has suffered physical abuse or if they're in a trap situation, and they are sort of situations that women are more inclined to find themselves in than men. Also, I think there's men and women complain differently, um, and I think that uh, that also is an influencing factor.
0: I'm speaking with Dr. Suzanne O'Sullivan. Her book, Is It All in Your Head? True Stories of Imaginary Illness. We're talking about psychosomatic illnesses on today's Please Explain, and we will continue after this. And we are back with Dr. Suzanne O'Sullivan, who is a consultant in clinical neurophysiology and neurology at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery, also a special in, uh, as the uh, specialist unit based at the Epilepsy Center. She is the author of Is It All in Your Head? Two Stories of Imaginary Illness. It is published by other press. And... Uh, We uh, have a lot of calls coming in, so should we take a few? Let's go to um, Molly. Hi, Molly. You're on the air.
4: Hi. Uh, Thank you for taking my call. I was uh, motivated to call in because what your guest is talking about speaks directly to me because I did have a bout with chronic pain, and it started out as what I guess people might call a real injury. I fell and injured my shoulder, but then I didn't get better. And I went to doctors, I went to physical therapists. I worried a lot, and I just didn't understand what was going on and why I wasn't healing. And gradually, I began to suspect that I might be imagining it or it might all be in my head, and that started to scare me, to think that this is because there was no organic illness underlying my condition, that it might never go away. I also had a hard time believing that something that was in my head could actually be a real phenomenon. And a friend who was a doctor explained this to me, and it really was a turning point in my recovery when he said, well, think about the phenomenon of getting butterflies in your stomach. That's something that the real um, sensation is something that's actually happening in your body, and it's just triggered by a thought. And somehow that helped me put the dots together to say, you know what, it does make sense that stress, could actually trigger a muscle spasm, stress could actually trigger a pain that seems so out of control, and something that was interesting for me is that once I got my head around the idea that you know it was my own thought that was that was triggering the pain, I was able to gradually get over the pain, and it wasn 't a watershed moment um, in terms of the the recovery, but it was a watershed moment in terms of how I thought about it. And I think when it, again, this is a, a problem that affects a lot of people. And so, after I had this experience and did get over it, when I would speak to people, I, I would hear in their voice when, when I would suggest something like, "Maybe this is triggered by your thought." I didn't call it a psychosomatic illness, but I'd say maybe this is something that stress might be triggering.
0: Doctor Sullen?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, uh, she just put it absolutely beautifully. I think, you know, that um, what she's describing is is exactly correct. First of all, all our bodies um, produce physical things um, from essentially nowhere all the time. You know, if you know that somebody sitting beside you on the bus has headlights, then the first thing that happens is you begin feeling mm-hmm. itches um, without really having very much provocation at all. And just to say to Molly that I had a very similar experience myself. I broke a bone in my foot. And I wasn't used to being ill. And I think this happens to people when you're not used to being ill. We have expectations of our bodies. We think we're going to get better really quickly. When I broke my foot and I didn't get better really quickly, I began imagining all sorts of scenarios where the bone hadn't knit together properly. And it got to a point where I struggled to put my foot down on the floor because I was convinced that my foot had not healed. And all that really needed to happen was I had an X-ray. And when I learned that everything was fine, my symptoms miraculously melted away. So even in people who are not under a considerable amount of stress, the way you respond to injuries can result in disability. But rather than being seen as as something which is any sort of judgment or anything like that, I think people should see it, as Molly eventually did, um, as empowering. You know, the minute you realize that you have some... Um, that something psychological is impacting on your symptoms, then you are being offered some control to try and um, get better, basically. And I think it, it should, for many people, be an empowering diagnosis.
0: Was Freud the first to suggest that people suffer from psychosomatic illnesses? No, I think
1: that uh, Freud was somebody who, in writing studies in hysteria, brought this to the fore in positive ways and negative ways. So probably the doctor most famous for studying things like psychosomatic conditions was a neurologist called Charcot at the end of the 19th century. Um, and But before we really understood pathology and physiology and anatomy, it was very difficult to divide illnesses into diseases and psychosomatic conditions. So the neural de Charcot and Freud at the end of the nineteenth um, and beginning of 20th century brought this to into um, discussion um, but unfortunately um, Freud associated it very much with sexual abuse and that Became very problematic for the diagnosis, and we no longer subscribe to those ideas fully.
0: Who was Hans Berger, and why was he so important in the field of psychosomatic illnesses?
1: Well, Hans Berger is someone that's very important to what I do. So I see many people who have um, seizures as a result of um, psychosomatic conditions. So people who have full convulsions. And Hans Berger invented the EEG. So he taught us how to measure brain waves. And it's through measuring brain waves that we are able to distinguish someone ha- who has a, a, what we now call dissociative seizures, but what Freud and Charcot would have called a hysterical seizure, can be, can be um, very reliably diagnosed using the EEG that Hans Berger invented.
0: Are psychosomatic disorders classified in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders?
1: Yes, they are, um, and they're not referred to as a psychosomatic condition there. I'm using it really as an umbrella term to make sure that people really understand what I'm talking about. The neurological form of of psychosomatic disorders would be referred to as conversion disorders and functional neurological symptoms. Um, whereas the other sort of bodily symptoms like pain and tiredness are referred to as somatic symptom disorders. So we have an awful lot of really diverse and extremely difficult to understand names applied to this disorder, and I sometimes think that that causes some
0: confusion. Do we ever apply medications when we uh, suspect that it's a psychosomatic illness, or do do you simply suggest that somebody uh, go to... Uh, a psychologist, or would you suggest a placebo?
1: Well, I think that the treatment really is different for everybody. So, it, usually, medication isn't um, the standard treatment for these sort of conditions. Occasionally, people who have psychosomatic conditions are also depressed or also suffer with anxiety, and in those circumstances, antidepressants and anxiolytics may be suitable. But usually the treatment is more um, physical therapies combined with psychological therapies rather than medication-based.
0: Although, don't some um, people object to that? Don't the, the, Hey, I'm not imagining this. You're insulting me.
1: Well, it's, it, that's what's so important. We need to make people realize that these conditions are extremely common, that they're absolutely real and outside of a person's control. And I think if people could understand that, then they would realize that this is just an illness rather than a judgment because at the moment I really do think it's used as a judgment against somebody and it seems to be used to imply that there's nothing wrong. These disorders are absolutely real and we need to start taking them an awful lot more seriously.
0: Let's take another call. Abigail from Central New Jersey, you're on the air.
1: Hi, yes,
4: I'm calling in because I was... I started getting seizures about two and a half years ago, and when I first saw a doctor, a neurologist, they diagnosed me with um, psychogenic seizures and said I just needed to see a psychiatrist and it could get better with, um, like, a post-traumatic stress kind of treatment. That never helped. I've seen six or seven neurologists since then. Two of them said they did see something and that I had something called frontal lobe syndrome. But no doctor I've seen since then has confirmed that diagnosis, and I was hoping maybe I could get some advice on where to go next. This anti seizure medicine that the one doctor gave me did help, Mm -hmm. but my current neurologist wants to take me off of it because she says I don't have real seizures.
1: Yeah, well, obviously what needs to happen is you need to be absolutely confident you've got the right diagnosis. Um, In general, it it is possible to mistake frontal lobe seizures and hysterical seizures. There can be very similar elements. However, any good epilepsy specialist who sees seizures on a regular basis should be able to make a confident differentiation between the two of those things. And the standard test usually would be to... Have somebody videoed during their um, while they're having an EEG in order to witness the attacks, and that in general allows um, uh, epilepsy specialists to make a confident diagnosis. So I would really encourage you to find someone who works almost exclusively in epilepsy, and if you can do that, you should be able to get a proper diagnosis epilepsy drugs can sometimes help hysterical seizures through the placebo effect because we want them to work so badly that they make us feel better so that doesn't really um change the the diagnosis of dissociative seizures or hysterical
0: seizures okay abigail all right thank you thank you lillian from port washington new york you're on the air
5: thank you so much for listening to me or allowing me on your show uh, I'm a psychotherapist and life coach, and my specialty is integrative mind-body work. Uh, I learned when I was living in California. I learned uh, interactive guided imagery, and that is a thing where the the client or patient allows an image to form that represents a pain in their back, um, a pain anywhere, uh, and has a conversation with the uh, with their image finds out why the the image is hurting the person, and then they they suggest a, a procedure, I mean something to do, something that the person has to do, not having anything to do with medical. This has nothing to do with the medical model, and that's why it's so hard to get to. Um, We have very little
0: time, Lillian. I'm
5: sure. A woman came to me who had fibromyalgia, and in five sessions, she was finished with all the pain. She had gone through two operations, which didn't help. The movable pain is because, as a child, something happened, and she locked it into a little closet inside her, as we all do when we can't comprehend what's happening. And that was leaking out for years. So that was causing this movable pain. And uh, more people need to go to acupuncture first and people like myself who do uh, integrative mind-body therapy.
0: We're we're kind of almost out of time. So acupuncture, that's a a solution, Dr. Sullivan?
1: Well, I think that Um, I'm certainly not against the sort of therapies that um, your call is describing or acupuncture. I think that um, in the first instance, things like cognitive behavioral therapy combined with physical therapies are very useful. But it's very much treat the individual according to how their disability develops. So it's different for everyone. And I'd encourage people to not give up if the first thing doesn't work. You know, in the same way, if you take an asthma inhaler, the first one doesn't work. You try a different one. Sometimes you have to try different
0: things. You've called your last chapter last. I guess uh, that's one of the solutions as well. We're out of time, unfortunately, but thank you so much for participating in today's Please Explain. Uh, Dr. Suzanne O'Sullivan, her book, Is It All in Your Head? True Stories of Imaginary Illness. It is published by Other Press.